Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Soundworks Collection interview series. This is Michael Coleman and this week I spoke with re-recording mixer Mike Presswood-Smith and re-recording mixer Michael Keller who both worked on the film Into the Woods. This film is a modern day twist on the beloved Brothers Grimm fairy tale put to music and lyrics by Stephen Sondheim and directed by Rob Marshall. I really enjoyed this film and the amount of music that is part of the story is incredible. The music and sound team did a seamless job mixing and editing the actors musical performances and we explore the meticulous process required to bring this theatrical performance to the big screen. I hope you enjoy. What, what did you guys think about just, were you aware of the story of, of the music of Sondheim and how, how much did you know about the Into the Woods uh, world? Well, I knew about Sondheim from uh, Sweeney Todd. Okay. Uh, uh, Tim Byrne did a few years ago. Yeah. And, uh, but not really a great deal apart from that. I didn't really know much about Into the Woods. It turns out that I think Into the Woods is a bit of a, an American staple. So <laughs> just, like, to, just like Thanksgiving. Like Thanksgiving and turkey and pumpkins and things. Uh, <laughs> it never really sort of caught on, at least not not in my neck of the woods in England. It never really caught on there. And um, so I wasn't really familiar with it as a piece. Mm-hmm. But obviously I knew Sondheim and his style and um, the way he uh, writes lyrics and music. And, you know, I was looking forward to getting my teeth into that. But I uh, didn't really know it as a piece. Nice. What about you, Mike? Yeah, I didn't know it at all. I did some research when we knew that we we're going to do this movie. Um, just listened to his songs, and uh, downloaded the play, the Broadway uh, version of it, to oh, yeah. just get familiar with the whole story and how it's all interwoven. And then once we did the first tempo, which was uh, last March, yeah, um, it was mind blowing how how they put it all together. Nice. And uh, so, who was handling uh, music and effect, or music? Who was handling effects? How'd you guys break it up? Uh, I do everything. <laughs> and I just <laughs> I bring him lunch. No, uh, I, I, Mike Presswood Smith, I do music and dialogue. Yeah, I, I handle all the effects, BGs, and Foley in the design. Okay, fantastic. And I mean, have you guys worked together in the past on other projects? Yeah, we have. We we cross paths on um, Hellboy Two, Golden Army in London, which was probably five years ago or so. Oh, no, that was seven, seven, seven years ago. Well, it's too long now. Yeah. Okay. Um, but that's where we crossed, and uh, ever since we've been, you know, on and off, um, mixing movies together wherever we're needed. You're still dating. Still dating. Yeah. Well, you know, still <laughs> yeah. to be divorced, but yeah. uh, mainly at Warner. <laughs> we just can't make the commitment. <laughs> nice. So, um, I guess, what did you think of this project? Just from the very, I mean, what what was the earliest stage that you were involved with? How early did you get involved for a project like this? Because I feel like you just can't show up at the end no. and and just well, expect to make it work. I mean, uh, you know, we come on relatively late compared to the sound supervisors, Rene Tondelli and Blake Lee. And, yeah. um, but as soon as I heard it was, it was going around, I guess it was a couple of years ago, you know, I spoke with Rene about it and expressed my interest and I wrote to Rob and, you know, we were very keen to get involved <clears throat> and uh, fairly early on got uh, some commitment to be on the project. So, nice. but it, really until, until things had been shot, our involvement was pretty limited. I mean, not to say that, there was a lot of work went on beforehand. I mean, Mike Hyam, who's our music editor, um, was on for a long time. <clears throat> Rob Marshall tends to do these long, intense uh, rehearsal periods with his cast before right. he gets even gets to a shooting stage. And uh, he, you know, he likes to get everyone fully rehearsed, get their get their character formed, and get them understanding where their marks are, and really getting a lot of the hard work done before they even get to a set. And uh, so 
so Mike Hyam had to be there during all that rehearsal period with a recorded mm. score of some sort that they could practice singing to. Okay. So a lot of that was done, you know, probably getting on for two years ago or at least a year and a half ago. And uh, so they spent a month rehearsing with the temp score that Mike recorded. And um, then once, just just before they got to the set, they did a, a fairly intense period of vocal recording at uh, British Grove Studios in London and um, recorded all their vocal tracks that they could play back to mime to on mm. the set. So all that was a considerable amount of work that was put in place before the first frame of film was shot. So sound was doing a lot of the heavy lifting from a very early stage, yeah. uh, technically. Um, so, so whilst we weren't involved at that point, really, you know, I spoke with Mike a few times and, you know, there's questions here and there, but really until the director's cut was in place, uh, that's when we really started to get our hands dirty. Yeah, I mean, just knowing uh, these movies seem to, there's one or two every year, there's been... You know, Chicago and Les Mis more recently. What, what do you guys think of, a, just from a production standpoint, of what, what is the, the major factor of how these films differ in terms of what shows up on your faders? I'd say, you know, from my point of view, music and particularly and, and dialogue, obviously um, it's a whole different language. It's, you, you know, that you, people aren't used to being sung to in real life. It depends where you're from. There's <laughs> <laughs> a whole um, level of, uh, you've got to... Just, you know, sustained belief, disbelief uh, on a whole different level with it. Right. So, um, but I, th I think from a technical point of view, it's it's really the biggest challenge for me is getting the vocal performances to sound completely integrated and real and uh, natural and and part of you know the, what's on the screen belonging to the pictures. Because really, what happens with Rob is that he he does all these pre-records, mm -hmm. but actually the sound of the performances comes from a lot of different places. There's, there's the pre-recorded material. Yeah. There's a lot of sound shot on stage on the, on the shooting stage, uh, on the day. And then there's stuff recorded afterwards and, and he's, he's all about performance. So he'll, he'll go for the best performance, whatever that might be. And it's yeah. up to us to then make it work. And I say us, I mean, all of us, Mike, yeah. Hein, Rene, Mike Keller, me, everybody, to put all the little pieces together to make it feel real. And actually, an interesting thing I experienced on this was that the tolerances for for sound to make the performance feel real was really tight. Mm. Um, it's, it's, it's amazing how attuned we are sonically without realizing it to understanding if something is right or wrong or real or not. And um, uh, just just getting the performances to to sit with the characters on screen it doesn't sound like a challenge but it really is a <laughs> significant challenge to do especially when you're going in and out of dialogue and production and back to pre-record and then into a post-recorded line and then back and sometimes it's literally word for word so yeah. for me that's a kind of unique challenge for me because it's um normally you have a dialogue track and yes you have might you might have some adr but it's 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 a fairly understandable sort of uh um established yeah. sort of technique to get that to work but with this it's 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 a, it's a lot of work just to get it to feel right let alone anything else yeah and for you mike uh keller um what did you find in terms of <laughs> dodging around all the music cues that seemed to pop up almost at every scene 
Yeah, it's interesting because normally musicals you think of there's a piece of uh, there's a regular spoken scene and then they go into a musical dance number. Right. And, and it's a whole show off. And uh, this one isn't. It, it goes, as Mike said, back and forth between dialogue and singing uh, all the time. And so the effects work stayed consistent throughout. It's, it's basically um, keeping the realistic environment up at all times where normally you would, you would make room uh, to clear for music, but here it it, it kind of creates the environment that they're in, yeah. and it needs to stay there. Otherwise, it it becomes an artificial song, which this shouldn't be. Um, and then also when it gets into the louder sections, like the giant, um, I mean that's where it was similar to an action movie where you bob and weave around, and you're just trying not to clutter it with sound overload. Yeah. Um, one of the things I found that was really cool about this is that you'd expect the music sections to get louder, uh, mm -hmm. just in nature, but I feel like you guys were able to carry the dynamics, especially every time, uh, the witch shows up, it seems that everything got, it punched through and grabs your attention. It was very, uh, effective. And, uh, and how did you guys manage just the, the, I guess the volume level, noise level, just all the dynamics from going from the music and dialogue and trying to figure out a, a good baseline? Yeah, good question. I think, um, I think the nature of Sondheim and, and the way the things have been written, it sort of dictated the terms for us a bit because I think, as Mike just said, most musicals are compartmentalized and they, you get a, a narrative, then you get this big music number, then you get a bit of narrative. And, the way Sondheim works is the narrative is all locked up in the vocals. And so really they have to be treated like dialogue in many ways. So you have to clearly understand everything that's being said, because yeah. if you if you lose a word, then you've lost a story. So keeping the vocals clear and upfront and um, uh, understandable was probably the page one line one mm. for certainly for Rob and, you know, for all of us. But uh, managing everything around that, that was the that was the dance that we did, I guess, for a couple of months is to find exactly how we play everything against that to make it feel right. Yeah. And what we discovered quite early on was um, after our temp mix uh, and once we got the picture locked, uh, a whole new score was recorded in London mm. at air, a much bigger orchestra, much more dynamic. And the plan was to really sort of amp up the the mix we had done the temp mix and sort of make it into a bigger number and it was interesting because rob from very early stage in the final once we we, we sort of put together real one and he looked at him and it and it kind of lost some of its charm because um we had kind of over egged the pudding with a large yeah. orchestra and 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 he was very keen to try and keep the dynamics um certainly early on um much more about the vocal performances and much more about the characters than it was about the music the music is there to support the performance rather than to take it to some big dramatic place <laughs> Obviously, sure. there are there are places later on in the film like uh meryl's last midnight and various other places where we're, we're into a big musical number territory but Certainly from early on, he, he felt like we wanted to keep it sort of almost chamber orchestra-like. So it just supported these very intricate uh, performances that weave about between talking and singing uh, almost. And he want, I think his, his, key, his key word was to have it flow so that you never felt 
you were being jerked from one world to the next, that the whole thing sort of lived in one place. And so finding how music did that and supported it and effects was, you know, trial and error. And um, as the film progressed, I think the dynamics changed dramatically as well. So mm. it was a it was a big picture thing and it was a it was a real um, like I say, trial and error. It, it wasn't really like a plan. It was just we did it until it felt right. Yeah. And what did you find uh, with your production mixture, John Casali? Um, was he just focusing on dialogue then? No, uh, he had a set? massive challenge because um, what would happen is um, they would do if uh, the the first opening sixteen minutes is is a big basically one piece where you set up all the characters, you set up all the story, the whole premise, mm -hmm. and it's all linked together with one piece of music. And those <clears throat> that music uh, integrates both uh, singing and just straight up dialogue. So mm -hmm. the whole thing is like a little jigsaw puzzle. Yeah. And uh, in order to get that on film, um, you know, what they did on the day was they used to they played back orchestra they played back the music as as the as the as the scene was getting shot or the bits of each scene was getting shot and um they'd have playback of a uh, vocal so that uh, our characters could sing against their pre-recorded vocal so they'd do a few takes of that and then rob would get them to do a few takes where they didn't have the guy track so they, they were a bit freer to just sing along with the music. But the whole time, <clears throat> this music, this track was being played on pretty large, pretty loud speakers. And so um, using a boom was pretty much out of the question. So so John had to um, get these clip mics into a pretty good place for capturing, you know, uh, the vocals, should we, and we definitely did need them uh, to integrate with the pre-recorded stuff. So mm. he not only had to battle against um, a lot of background noise and a lot of playback stuff, but also getting these mics in a in a place which was going to be useful for us, but without getting in the way of the you know the performance, the performers, and uh, in, in the camera. So he actually had a very difficult job, and <clears throat> not just that, but you know these vocal performances, some of them are incredibly dynamic, and um, they'll go from a whisper to a you know, <laughs> yeah, as you've seen, um, to a big projected note. So he, uh, the, some of the most dynamic tracks I've ever had to mix in terms of production uh, production tracks, they really were quite extraordinary, uh, the dynamic range in them and finding how to keep that uh, in a place that made sense was quite a challenge for me. But from his point of view, he did a fantastic job just capturing those dynamics and capturing that material without really us um, you know, having the bother of all this playback that he had to. <laughs> well. Yeah. And uh, Mike Keller, how did you find just, you know, working with the editorial and sound design team, the supervisors and whatnot of supporting the non-musical elements of of this film? Because there's a lot of great uh, environments and characters and moments that also have like some comedic timing aspect to it. what's going on in, in the film. Yeah, they were fantastic. They went out and uh, Blake Lay flew out to LA. He, I think he had some friend with a giant ranch up in Big Bear to record, um, you know, tree material and down to chopping down large trees to record them. And uh, the comedic timing was designed mainly by Blake and um, Rob as well. Okay. And uh, Wyatt Smith, our editor, they've been cutting with, with uh, Blake sound effects in the Avid forever. 
to get all the rhythm down because Rob's all about rhythm. And uh, even if they're not singing, it's still all timed out to every frame is designed. It's not by accident. Yeah. And so they've they've used a lot of very original material, recorded five channel backgrounds, and then Foley was a huge part of the whole show to stitch the all the different dialogue bits and pieces together and the singing bits and pieces because once Mike had to put it all together with pre-records and post-records and set records and, and all of that, um, you needed something common to continue through because once you go to ADR, obviously everything drops out. Mm-hmm. And so the dress movement needed to go through, the foley needed to go through, the ambiences and, and all of that was a big part of that puzzle as well. Mike was the glue, <clears throat> really. With an edit, was it a rolling edit? Did you find that there were still changes? Because I feel like the music is kind of locked in. That's your master track in a way in, in, in those scenes. And I mean, was there much uh, latitude with, with some of those scenes? Well, uh, yeah, <laughs> there was uh, early on when we, um, I think I said earlier, Rob likes to do a rehearsal with his ensemble and mm-hmm. and he really likes to get things worked out. And um, so when you go into it for real, you you know what it is. And, and effectively, he did the same thing with us. We um, we did a very comprehensive temp mix uh, with him right after the end of the director's cut. And uh, he, um, I think uh, it was comprehensive because he really wanted to see exactly what he had, what worked, what the vocal performances were, yeah. and where he could start making cuts. Um, and so um, the biggest the biggest player in that were really was the was the music. I mean, the vocals you can right. what you've got to cut, but the music keeping that fluid. And something that's able to open up or contra- you know, con- con- contract should it need to. And all the bridging pieces that were put together <clears throat> was entirely down to Mike Hyam. <clears throat> he, um, he had an orchestra he recorded in London, a small one. Mm-hmm. But also, when, when edits were made and the orchestra didn't work, he would just go in and rewrite it with MIDI stuff. So <clears throat> our, our temp really was um, an amazing patchwork of uh, bits of orchestra and bits of MIDI material that he'd put together and how he kept that thing working throughout <laughs> is I, I really don't fully understand how he managed to do it because I think had he got run over by a bus this film would never have come out because he had the keys to that that mystery and it really was it was quite amazing how he managed to keep it um, as fluid and yet as um, detailed and as, yeah. as you it was so he he really had the bulk of that work when it came to the cut nice but like i say i think the 10 mix we did was very um insightful and useful for everybody to to sort of see what they had and it was the main cuts really came right after that and then as you can imagine things start becoming pretty solid after a while because the implications are so big you know Um, but um yeah, it was really a lot a lot of his work to keep that thing going. Awesome. And uh, I think there's a few scenes that really stood out to me. One of them was uh, the wolf scene played by Johnny Depp when when uh, Little Red Riding Hood is that perspective of, of her inside of the wolf's stomach. Oh, yeah. And, and it goes into this, like, Johnny Depp fear and loathing type of, uh, type of mood. And, and, yeah. And, and were there other scenes... Um, for you guys that was were a lot of fun just stylistically or even what you're able to do with playing sound around the room and and opening it up and taking it off the the front wall yeah i guess um 
I mean, the only effects other than the giant, we actually tried to stay away from that, um, okay. from the sound effects world and also from a, a, a score perspective. Because anytime we, we tried, obviously, in the uh, in the final, the first couple of days of the final, we mm -hmm. did exactly that, where we went all surround crazy and then trying to make it all, you know, three dimensional. But yeah. when Rob came in, it his first uh, note was that it takes away from the vocal performance. Okay, and he was right when we compare it back to the avid or the temp that we've done the score and all the rest just wrapped around the dialogue or the the lyrics better and it made it sound more realistic once you start pulling that away from them yeah. uh to uncover the center it becomes more of a fake performance or more like a an adr piece because it doesn't seem real anymore mm. so that's what we've done then you know uh, throughout the next following weeks to just experiment how far can we push it in terms of surrounds or not surrounds yeah uh to not take away from uh the singing part of it so also as the film progresses i think i said earlier it it becomes <clears throat> you, you it allows you to to sort of um uh enjoy it a bit more once you got used to the, the whole thing and also thematically it just gets bigger and uh, so as it as it goes along it does open up quite significantly so by the end <clears throat> if you played the first cue against the last cue you'd hear a dramatic difference in dynamics and in in in, space, in width yeah. in width yeah. it's yeah. just it's the slow turn of the screw it's not um it took us a while to earn that if you like do you guys have any favorites uh either favorite scenes or favorite tunes it, it seems like there's i don't know how many cues there are here i'm just looking at even the the soundtrack here of twenty yeah. two two discs, sixteen. Oh my god, thirty four. There's something like fifty cues. I mean, how many? Yeah, there's an enormous amount. I I've got a few. Yeah. There's one at the end, uh, just before last midnight, called "Your Fault," which is a really mm. short but incredibly articulated piece. The where he's four of our characters really fast too. Incredibly yeah. fast, and uh, the orchestrations kind of insane when you listen to it on its own <laughs> just think this shouldn't work but it does and uh i think the way rob and wyatt put that together uh and obviously rehearsed it and and cut it, it it's a wonderful demonstration of the of, of of what a musical can be because there's so much story and it's humor and it's but but it's also it's also a great musical piece as well so for me that had kind of everything in it, even though it's not by any means the, the loveliest piece by any stretch, I think it was. Uh, I, I watch that and kind of can't help but chuckle when I see it because it's <laughs> such a, a great piece, I think. Yeah, what about for you, Mike? I love them all because our biggest headache was to get those tunes out of our heads every time we went <laughs> forward. And we, every, had to, every, uh, we used to have to listen to Casey Perry like over and over again so we didn't hear into the woods. We, we had it on loop to, to uh, delete our brains, to erase all those songs because they're all, they all stick. Yeah. And they're all very catchy tunes. So I couldn't right. really tell you what my favorite is or least favorite. They, they, you hum them all. So I think they're all fantastic then. I think, I think it, Stay, yeah. Stay With Me from Merrill as well is, yeah. is a real puts you know the hairs on the back of your neck stand up when she gets going on that it's quite extraordinary her performance i love the fact that people even when they're in the movie before the movie after the movie are like did they really sing that and then when you look at the credits and all of them have you know clearly been a part of, of yeah. the performance it's it's pretty astonishing that they can act sing dance yeah 
even the princes, and I and I understand from my time, <laughs> quite a challenge getting that vocal performance to stand up. Why are they not singers or? Well, I don't think either of them are. Well, I think Billy is, but Chris I don't think is. And uh, he sure sounds good. I, yeah, he does. They pulled it off. Yeah, they, they pulled it off. I, I probably shouldn't say any more than that. But, um, <laughs> oh, come on. Uh, no, I think if you played a recorded version right against the final version, you would probably have a have a good good laugh. <laughs> but that just shows in terms of I mean just yep. how, how much latitude you guys have with the tracks that you're given and I mean yeah, how, yeah. how it all comes together and so seamless. Uh, I, I just feel like I, I, you know I, my expectation going into like I was expecting to be a fun um, you know movie and the last movie I saw was Chicago, another Rob Marshall film. Um, mm. I didn't see Les Mis, but it's it is a, a pretty amazing just experience, you know, for kids or adults. I mean, for you guys, yeah. was there an audience in mind that you were trying? I mean, it's a Disney film, so it's mm. it's the people's film. Yeah, I guess <laughs> funny because from an early point, um, you know, there was a bit of criticism floating around on the Internet about mm -hmm. will Disney sanitize this film? You know, because there's a lot of love for the stage play. And yeah, I think Rob, you know, had to deflect a lot of that. Um, probably for the first real time, you know, because social media is so active these days. And um, I think uh, so. So uh, we were keen to make sure it wasn't sanitized in any way. And, and Rob, having come from theater anyway, had a lot of love for the piece. I think it was the first thing he directed on the stage, uh, choreographed. Wow. And he uh, was keen to, to, to make sure the story had kept its integrity and kept its darkness and its... Uh, and it's undercurrent of of tragedy and um, sorrow and um, all the lessons that get learned in the woods. And uh, I think he was keen to make sure that was there. But also, you know, we're mindful that um, it's a it's a family film. It's not it's not really designed for any particular age group. I think there really is something in there for everybody. I think the characters are familiar fairy tale characters, and yet the premise is uh, quite a complex one and quite a an emotional and meaningful one that I think adults can really engage with as well. So uh, yeah. it it's a it's it's I think it's one of its real plus points is that it's able to appeal to a wide audience in that way. What was the total runtime on on it? I think it was two hours five. Yeah, it didn't it, it didn't feel long. Even good. For, <laughs> I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but I, m I remember going out. I was like, there's a, well, I think it's because there's so much music that it, yeah. It's, you're sitting through a minute, two, three minutes of just musical theater, and um, it's just a mixture of obviously the work that you guys are doing and how the camera was. And I, actually, that's something I realized from the first cue um, with the scene of of them. Um, I think it was with oh, I'm trying to remember. It, it was when the Jack um, was at the house with his mom, and maybe it was just the camera of just a, kind of a single shot. These long takes. Um, yeah, maybe longer. Was that a kind of a saving grace for you guys, or was that a kind of a nightmare of having longer takes that you have to stick with? It? You can't cut away and hide editorial type of uh, decisions. Oh yes, you can. <laughs> <laughs> We're hiding all over the place behind yeah. every bush, every tree. There's a there's a bit of scaffolding of sound scaffolding. Um, uh, I don't think honestly, really, that made a lot of difference for okay. us. Really, no. Uh, uh, I never really felt that that was uh, an issue for okay. us. Okay. All right. 
Uh, and then, um, I guess, lastly, Mike, for you, what did you find was kind of an unexpected discovery of just because of this world is kind of a, it, it takes, it's a real world, but it's a fantasy world. And, um, I mean, effects-wise, where did you guys want to take it? Well, you know, interestingly, I think the power of a fantasy and of a fairy tale is how real you make it. Yeah. I think, and I think uh, one of the things that the film allowed us to do that a stage play wouldn't is to really get kind of immersive in the reality of this place that is actually totally make-believe. Yeah. And so we, you know, you're looking at these images of giants and witches and woods and and really what you're, what you're doing is trying to give them the integrity, the image, the integrity. So you're, you're really there to make it as, as, as real and as, and as visceral and as meaningful as possible. Yeah. And so I think, uh, you know, and especially when you're trying to support the premise of a, of singing and a musical, you, you, you want to have some grounding. And I think in many ways, the sound was a sort of ballast for this film. It was like the real, stuff at the base of the ship that kept the thing floating you know mm. and so we we were really keen to make sure the whole time that's what it did and that sounds like a simple task but it's effectively like doing uh, an animation because it's it's all put on the screen nothing is there uh, nothing nothing has been recorded really apart from perhaps these bits of vocals that go in and out of the pre-record so just getting all of that material to feel like it connects to the image and adds to the story and gives the fairy tale an authenticity it was probably the the bulk of our work. Yeah. Um, what for you, Mike uh, Keller? Did you find that there were uh, from the script to what you guys ended up with? I mean, what 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 is your reference in terms of when you guys are digging into your tracks of of how uh, I mean authentic to the stage? performance or the you know the stage version and this version was it a complete departure then it's not a complete departure it's just you're creating that that world that you can't create on the stage in terms of backgrounds or just sonic space yeah. um where the movies i'd say 80 percent shot indoor right it's all a shooting stage totally. okay other giant trees um out in the woods yeah. but uh it's all a set so um i was unaware of uh how much lack of sound there is in musicals once you get started on it. <laughs> yeah. It was like my said, it's a, it's like an animated feature where you have nothing there and you have to recreate everything because it's either pre-recorded singing or it's uh, lavalier microphones from the set. So there's no mm. movement, there's no birds, obviously. There, there's It's a vacuum, it's just crystal clear voices. And uh, as Mike said, that once something is a little bit too loud or a little too low, it's a it's a very fine line where it it disrupts it disrupts the whole um, scene where it's not believable anymore, and that took the most time to uh, massage it all together that it's believable. Nice. Well, you guys, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this project. Um, I don't know. I might go see it again. Who knows? I I, I saw it by myself, <laughs> <laughs> which is a, which is a, which is a fun experience seeing into the woods by yourself in a room full of families and you're like uh, <laughs> who's that weird guy there yeah who's that guy um but thank you guys again and congratulations on this amazing thank project you. and um you know i guess um gosh what, what you know if, if there was uh something that people should look out for um 
you know, what, what is it? What, what is it? I guess one of the cues you said, but, you know. I'd say careful what you wish for. Yeah. What about you, for you Mike? No, that's exactly it. If you watch the trailer, that's how the trailer ends. And uh, it's so true. <laughs> because cherish what you have and uh, because what you wish for might not be as good. Nice. Thanks, guys. Well, it was a lot of Howdy. fun. And, uh, thanks again. Great. Thanks. See you soon.